As Mo Moses is interacting and he brings up a concern that he has in verse 1. He says, Israel's not going to believe me or listen to my voice. I think that's a rational concern that he has. And so God gives him these three signs. Throw your staff on the ground, it becomes a serpent. Put your hand inside your cloak and it becomes leprous. Put it back in and it's healed immediately. And then the final sign where the Nile River, or, uh, water from the Nile River will be turned to blood. And all of these demonstrate God's power over life and death. His power over the Egyptian gods, his power over or his ability to cure and rescue Israel from the threat of death. And Moses is also concerned in verse 10 with his own personal being. He's concerned that he is not adequate for the task, that the task and its needs and the complications of it are overwhelming. I think he's probably a little more concerned maybe even about the danger to his own life, perhaps even still being aware that he deserved death from the death penalty for having murdered an Egyptian foreman. And so we have these concerns where Moses is struggling with his own competency and ability to accomplish a task. And before we go any further, does that resonate with anyone else in this room? There are probably times in your life, whether maybe at the beginning of marriage, where you look at the bride that God has given you and you think, oh boy, I'm supposed to lead her I am supposed to help her and guide her and call her to Christ. I don't even know where we're going to live. I have no idea what life holds, and I don't know that I am the man for the task, but she's worth the risk. Or maybe when you hold your first child, and you think, this, this little soul will live somewhere forever. And I am neither able to bring faith to this person, nor as a parent do I have a clue with what I'm doing. And I have not had this personal experience to sit by the deathbed of a precious loved one and being at that place where you are unable to give help or health to the person who's passing away. No matter where you are in life, if God has called you to salvation, he has called you to be a servant. He's called you to minister to your family. He's called you to minister to your spouse, to your children. He's called you to serve within his church and his assembly. All of these are tasks that I could suggest you would share with the apostle, his refrain, who is sufficient for these things? And the answer is, you're not. The answer isn't, we are. The answer is, Christ has granted us sufficiency. Now, this is the very concern that Moses has in this text. He looks at the daunting task of going to a, as they will later be called, a stiff-necked, a stubborn group of people. A ragtag, unorganized, decentralized group of people that are stubborn. And he has to build a coalition of leadership and authority, lead them in an insurrection against the most powerful nation in the area, and against a man who has his heart set on oppressing and subduing this nation. A man whose heart is pagan and hard, Pharaoh of Egypt. And so we see the, the fear, the concern, the inadequacy of Moses in this text. Verse 10 with me. But Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. 
Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, Oh my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses and said, Is there not Aaron your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people and he shall be your mouth and you shall be as God to him. Take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. God's response to Moses, in fact, if you highlight all the words of God in this text and all the words of Moses, you see that the, the main speaker in this text is actually the Lord. And I would suggest to you that from chapter 3 and onward in Exodus, God is laying out for himself or laying out for us who he is. He's de- describing himself to us. And so in this text, the main concern is not Moses. The main concern for our attention should be who is the Lord? Who is the Lord in this text? And so as we begin, I I think Moses, it's interesting commentators aren't sure whether Moses is actually slow of speech or Moses is just overwhelmed by the task and giving an excuse. It's clear in verse 13, there's a lack of desire or maybe an overwhelming sense of avoidance. So Moses is clearly trying to escape the task in front of him because he feels overwhelmed by this. And God responds by giving him grace. And maybe I should suggest to you God responds by reminding him of grace. So on the question of whether or not Moses is not eloquent or whether he is actually slow of speech, Stephen in the New Testament says he was actually powerful in speech. I would tend to think that Moses actually was strong as a communicator. The challenge might be, though, this is rather something we speculate in ignorance. Because in this text, he's promised and guaranteed to be strong of speech because of God's strength. So whether or not he naturally was gifted before this or not, I think what we have to say is the end result is we have a man who's gifted and powerful in communication because of the grace of God. So how do we get there? Look down with me. Verse 11, God's answer. And I would suggest to you the first assertion of this text is that God gives abilities to his servants. God gives abilities to his servants. We'd often call these natural abilities because he's not talking about something supernatural here. He's not talking about his ability to to give or take away leprosy. We're just simply talking about God's giving all people the abilities that he has for them. Verse 11, the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? That's certainly concerning these Elements of communication, seeing, hearing, and speaking. God is saying something really simple, isn't he? I grant to my servant the exact needs for the task to which I've sent him. So when Moses says, hey, hey, listen, I can't talk. There's an an insinuation here that somehow God has called him to a task and not adequately equipped him for the job. I don't know if you've ever had that experience. I showed up at a construction site when I was working, um, doing construction, and the lumberyard didn't deliver the material. That was a great day. 
for a long time. We sat there and did nothing until the truck came quite a bit late, and finally we could begin working. And this is Moses' assertion that God has somehow called him to a task and not delivered the materials necessary for the task. It's insulting. It insinuates somehow that God has not provided for his people all that is necessary for obedience. And so God presses back. Moses, who made your mouth? Who made your ears and who made your eyes? And I would just suggest to you, at least implicitly, God is making clear that even the tragic loss of our senses, our ability to communicate, are also by his divine providence. So if God has called you to a task and you measure your own capacities and you find yourself inadequate, you and God are using a different measuring stick and his is right. How often do we find ourselves on the, on the outset of a call to ministry? Maybe someone says, hey, would you be willing to work? Fill in the blank. And you say, no, I'm just really no good at that. That's exactly what Moses is doing. Except in some, instead of some overworked, desperate ministry laborer who's calling you to partner with them, this is God Almighty. And he's able to say, hey, I made your mouth. I wonder if there are times people even within our church say no to ministry, not because they're incapable by God's grace, but because their own measure is faulty. I remember my, my uncle suggesting that he would never say no to a ministry that was offered to him because he'd assume that it came from the hand of God. And I think that's a good rule to live by. If someone asks you to serve the Lord, with what reason can you say no? Moses is faced with this, and here's the point. God has made his mouth. God has given him ears and the ability to communicate, eyes to see with, so that when God calls him to a specific ministry, Moses would know that the Lord had provided for him the necessary abilities to serve the people of Israel well. Again, if we're granting Moses spiritual insight, he might be looking at the Herculean task and saying, I am not strong enough for this. In which case, God's answer in this text is also clear, isn't it? The answer is not, Moses, you're strong enough. The answer is, God has granted to me the gifts and the abilities to serve him. Therefore, I have a duty to obey and honor him. But that's not all. God continues on. As you see Moses respond back, God's answer silences his question about his speech capacity. But he continues on in verse 12 and says, not only have I given you your mouth, verse 11, now verse 12, I will be with your mouth and teach you what to speak. Maybe you could think of that in kind of a paraphrase, I will help you to say the right things. So it's, a, it's an offer of enablement. It's a promise that there will be capacity given to speak well in the moment. As you continue on, he says it again, Later in the text, if you look down into, um, excuse me, I think it's verse 16. That, that God says, excuse me, verse 15, that God will be with his mouth and he will teach them both what to do. That's because Aaron gets included as God promises Aaron. So God gives this really clear promise of help. Like, not only, Moses, have I made your mouth, but I will also give help to your mouth so that what you speak is the actual words I want you to speak, that you, the capacity with which you minister is a capacity supported by and strengthened by my grace. 
So Moses not only has the promise of divine providence in making him and crafting him uniquely for whatever God has called him to do, he now has a secondary promise that in the execution of this, God will be with his mouth. God will help him to speak, to understand, and to do and say what he should speak. This is a a reference, if you go back to, to Genesis 26, God says this to Isaac. In Genesis 26, 24, God tells Isaac, I will be with you and you'll be blessed. He says this again to Jacob. In, in Genesis 31, he tells Jacob that, God, that he'll be prospered because I will be with you. So now we come into Exodus, and with the story of the patriarchs in the minds of Israel, Moses is helping them to understand why he is the person he is, is not because he's a great man, but because God is with him. God is the one enabling him. God is the one granting him these abilities. These promises of God are granted to Moses so that he would speak well and carefully the words that God wants him to speak, that he would minister with grace and skill. So here's, here's I think, maybe a concern that Moses might have. If I'm going to go face-to-face with Pharaoh, if I say it wrong and offend him, man, it's going to go bad. Or as I interact with these elders, these noble leaders of Israel, and I, and I stumble over my words, maybe they'll reject me. And so now he has these, these double promises of, Moses, I have given you and provided for you the mouth that I wanted you to have, to speak the words that I want you to speak in the moments where your leadership is needed. And beyond that, Moses, I will be with you. I will help you. I will aid you. I will support you. I will give you the words to speak. I will enable your speech to be powerful and influential. More than that, and and I missed this in the text in terms of order, but if you look back with me in verse 12, this is actually one of those really good leadership moments for, for those who are leaders. It's a really clear command. And this is a grace. Look at verse 12. Now, therefore, go. Go. I, I've told you what I want. I want you to go talk to the elders. Then I want you guys to confront Pharaoh. I want you to lead my people out of Egypt. I already told you that Pharaoh has a hard heart, and he's only going to be brought up by a strong hand. Now you're telling me you have a bad speech problem. So let me make it really clear to you, Moses. Go. For those of you that are in the room and have ever gotten unclear commands, especially ones for which you'll be deeply accountable, a clear and objective guidance on what to do is a grace. Go. That's when Moses clearly and objectively says, please send someone else, which is not a great response. Okay, so he's already had I would suggest to you he's already had three graces granted to him or reminded to him. He has the grace of God's creation of his being to be exactly what God wants him to be for the task God has called him to have. He has been given a clear command, go, obey me and go. And now he's been granted 
the promise of God's provision and presence in the actual words he speaks so that there could be no confusion that this man has been called and granted by God, gifted by God, and enabled by God to do exactly what God wants him to do. And that's when he says no. Well, he doesn't say no. He very politely says, please, someone else. Send some other lamb to the slaughter so that I don't have to die. So then God, in anger, responds to Moses. And I would suggest to you, this is where clearly Moses moves from maybe reasonable concern to unrighteous, disobedient commitments, right? Like, please, sense I don't want to obey. I don't want to do what you want me to do. I want to do something different. God's anger is kindled. Usually that, that word anger in the Old Testament, just as an interesting note, has the idea of the nostrils being flared. So, so it's almost as though God is, is using this picture of a human being angry and the nostrils, nostrils flaring out in anger. God is upset with Moses for his unrighteous response to him. But notice that God had provided a grace beforehand. This is no surprise to God that he's asking a reticent servant to do something he doesn't want to do. Verse 14, as the anger of the Lord is kindled, God says to Moses, Is there not Aaron, your brother the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he's coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he'll be glad in his heart. So here's another gift. God gives a happy helper. And we've all had the not-so-gift gift of an unhappy helper. This is, this is a, an 83-year-old helper who's coming alongside of Moses, and he's happy. He's glad to see his brother. God had already provided, provided this as a means of rescue. Aaron is already on his way, and Aaron can speak well. It's interesting to note in the contours of Moses' ministry, at the beginning, Aaron is right there speaking often. By the end, it's always Moses speaking. It's like he needed a little bit of a probationary period where he had this crutch. And then as, as the Lord is strengthening him and equipping him for ministry, he no longer needs the crutch, and Aaron becomes a minister in his own right rather than someone who stands by Moses as his prophet. A little note here, and I think it's significant, it's Aaron, the Levite. Now, Moses is also a Levite. They're born from the same parents. But the point is significant in that God is laying the foundation for this special class, this Levitical class of priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood, from which the descendants of Aaron will rise up and serve as mediators between God and his people. These Aaronic priests will enter into the very Holy of Holies to interact with God, to offer sacrifices for sins. It's a significant moment because now as Aaron stands as, as in some ways, as Moses' prophet, speaking Moses' words for him like a human prophet speaks for God, Aaron then is laying, the, or God is laying the foundation for Aaron to be his intermediary, his priest, who stands between the people who are sinful and a God who is holy. Let me just take you really quickly to Deuteronomy 18 and, and see if this is, becomes a little bit more clear how God is beginning to foreshadow 
our need for a priest and a prophet. Deuteronomy 18, 18, this is a prophetic word from Moses. Moses states I, that, that, that God has worked and God will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I commanded him. And so here's what Moses is saying. There's a future prophet coming. And this future prophet is going to be similar to me in some ways. And God is going to put his words in his mouth, and he is going to speak all that God commands him to speak. Now, that's just like Moses at the launching of his ministry. God says, I will be with your mouth, and you will speak the words I want you to speak. And Moses is saying there's a future prophet coming who's going to speak God's words, the words God wants him to speak. And so in the text in Exodus 4, we have this foreshadowing of Christ, who is both a better Moses and a better Aaron. He is a better prophet who speaks the very words of God. But he's also our high priest. So that Hebrews 4 can say, we have a great high priest who is tempted in all ways like us, but is without sin. And the outcome of that is we can now go confidently before the throne of grace and enter the very presence of God through the priestly ministry of Christ. In John 12, Jesus says, I have not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment. What I say, what, I, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me to. So here's Jesus Christ in his ministry, as John records in his gospel saying, I am only speaking the words that God tells me to speak. As Moses is called into ministry, that's exactly what Moses was called to do. To be a messenger who only repeats what God has given him to speak. And Jesus is a better Moses. He leads his people out of the bondage of sin and into eternal life. He is the one who speaks the very words of God. And in the text in John, those words are the words of life. And he is the priest who is himself offering himself so that we can come to God. Moses was going to a people helplessly in bondage and enslaved who desperately needed rescue on two levels. They needed political rescue, freedom from the bondage that Egypt had put them under. But more than that, they needed the words of life. They needed to hear from God. They needed God to speak to them, to reveal his way to them. And Moses, as God's agent, brings both, but how much better is Christ? He is life. So he can emphatically declare, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, because his words are the words of life. He is, in fact, life. Moses' grace continues if we go back to chapter 4 of Exodus. You look with me down into verses 15 and 16. Moses' fourth grace. The anger of the Lord, having been kindled, he's given his brother is the fourth one as a helper, as a glad helper to come along and labor beside him. Verse 15 now, you shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. 
And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and he will teach you both what to do. So God gives this really clear plan to Moses. Not only has there been a clear command, now there is a simple plan. So here's the simple plan. You'll speak to him and put words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. So now the grace of help is expanded to include Aaron. But here's how this works. God is going to speak to Moses. Then Moses is going to speak to Aaron. Then Aaron is going to be Moses' mouthpiece. So it's like a a three-person train here, right? God speaking to Moses, Moses speaking to Aaron, and then Aaron publicizing the message that's actually from God through Moses. But there's there's a simple plan. Here's what you're going to do, Moses. Here's my accommodation of your weakness, and I would suggest to you your lack of desire to obey. And perhaps in there, there's a little bit of censure of Moses, a little bit of loss of privilege. God gives his plan to Moses. Speak this way. Finally, look at verse 17. Take in your hand this staff with which you shall do signs. So Moses is being reminded once again that the power and the accomplishment of this task does not reside in his abilities. And God is giving with with this commission, not only his divine presence, but this tool which is somewhat symbolic of God's presence to do powerful signs and wonders. If you were to read through the whole text again, going back to verses 1 through 9, with this staff, Moses is able to turn the Nile into blood. He's able to throw it down and have it turned into a serpent. It becomes this symbol. In verse 20, it's called God's staff. It's become the symbol of divine presence. You might even recall a story where Moses, when in battle, when he lifts up his staff, Israel thrives and and starts to win the battle. But if the staff drops, Israel starts to drop and lose in the battle. It's with his staff that he holds it over the sea and it parts. He strikes the Nile and it turns to blood. It's with his staff that he opens up a rock. And so that fresh water pours out and ministers to God's people. God calls him to this instrument as a symbol and as a conduit through which God's power will work. So here's these graces. These many graces, God gives these natural abilities to all of his servants to serve him. But with particularly with Moses, he gives this clear command, go, go. And then he promises divine assistance. And I will be with your mouth. Not merely divine assistance, he gives him a glad helper. For those that have ever been lonely or with a miserable helper, there is great benefit in a glad helper who walks through life with you. He had already prepared Aaron. So there's this this kindness of God in already accommodating the weakness of Moses and the need for a helper. God had already pre-planned and work this. Then God gives them these simple instructions. Go. God gives the actual words to Moses. In verse 15. And then in verse 16 and 17, you see that provision of the powerful signs and wonders. Now you look at a text like this. The whole point of this text is God. It is that God does this for his servants. 
What does he do for Moses? He does all of these graces. And obviously, some of them are unique to Moses. I mean, I'm not going to suggest to you that this text is teaching you that you have an Aaron out there somewhere, that you got to go find your glad helper. That's not the point of the text. But the point of the text is it reveals to us the nature and the character of our God. Who is our great and glorious God? He is a God who helps us because we are weak. He calls us to massive tasks. And he shamelessly asks us to sacrifice for him because he's worth it. And he's glorious. And and we, we measure the task. We're like, we can't do this. It's like me on very many mornings with three women driving in my home. I am the all-time gas getter. I get in the car and frequently I'm like, I do not have enough gas to get to where I need to go. And so I've got to make a detour by the gas station. Apparently, gas stations are wretched, horrible places, so I get to go. Perhaps you evaluate your life and you think there's just not enough juice in the tank. Like God has called you to something that's beyond you. And by the measure as you're looking at the evaluator of your life, of how much you've actually got to bring to the table, you're saying, I can't do this. This text does not preach the power of Moses. It preaches his inadequacy. He struggles with his faith. He struggles with his willingness. And he evaluates his competency based on human measures. And he says, I can't. Well, maybe you are saying that too. There are many Christians who bench themselves because they evaluate how good they are and the task ahead of them, and they say, time out, I got to take a rest here. I can't do this. And they're measuring the wrong resource. Their hope is in the wrong thing. It's in themselves and in their own abilities, their own competencies, their own hard-working ethic, their own ability to, to shape their child's heart towards Christ. Their confidence is in the wrong thing. This text is a call for Moses to stop trusting Moses. And if that's the case, then can I just boldly declare to you that Moses' struggles reveal to us our common struggles. And the answer for Moses was rely on God, the God of grace, the God who supplies all of these gifts to Moses to equip him. If I were to be unkind, I might ask you what your excuse is for benching yourself. Why are you on the sidelines? Why are you not boldly engaging those things to which God has called you? It should be no surprise that as Joshua gets ready to take the mantle of Moses. The beginning of Joshua starts with, be strong and courageous. I would argue very strongly that what God is not calling Joshua to, he is not calling him to self-confidence, bravery in, in and of itself, but a bold, courageous faith that relies on God for victory and success. That's why he says, meditate in God's word so that you do it. So that by walking with God, reliance on God, Joshua would see God's glory displayed as he graciously supplies victory for his people. 
So we come to the New Testament, and I just want to suggest to you, God has graced you abundantly in Jesus Christ. That when you evaluate yourself and you say, how could I accomplish this task successfully? That you're starting with the wrong measure. When the Apostle Paul says, who is sufficient for these things? He says, our sufficiency is of, it's of Christ, right? It's of, it's of God. Philippians 4, 19 through 20. My God will supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ. So, so consider just carefully that text. God will supply every need of yours according to the riches of his glory. Okay, so which needs of yours will he supply? It says every need. And the measure of his supply is the glory of Christ, which is unimaginable and infinite. And so there's no, there's no limit. God is, God is not impoverished that when you ask for help or grace, he, he grabs into empty pockets and he says, I wish I had something to help you with. He has all glory. And he can supply your needs. 1 Corinthians 15, 10. The apostle is speaking. It says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder. Now, that suggests to me both the divine grace to strengthen, equip, empower, and support Paul. But he says, I worked harder. I think perhaps one of the reasons is not just merely an assessment of our gifts, but we internally are just not committed to work. And consider the task Moses is being set on. We know what the outcome looked like. It might have been entirely different had Israel gladly waltzed into the promised land relying on God's grace. Instead, in fear they rebel. In faithlessness they have to spend another 40 years circling the wilderness. And Moses with them. So here's an 80-year-old man called to camp for 40 years to lead a motley crew of rebels who are going to incessantly complain and always be on the cusp of rebellion. There's almost always a mutiny in the mix for Moses. Yay. Like right there, I'm thinking Moses is going to cash in for Social Security and retire. If he could see what was coming, it makes me tired just explaining it. Just considering what the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy suggest you Moses went through, we can understand why he might have said, you know what, I'm not going to work. I'm going to retire. The Apostle Paul, likewise, suggests to you that he worked because God's grace was at work. 2 Timothy 2, Paul to his protege in the faith, be strengthened by grace. Let me end with 2 Corinthians 12. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul has some type of, of crippling need. We don't know what it is. It doesn't, the debate really doesn't matter too much. But the Apostle Paul summarizes his conclusion. 
God has said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Now, to be clear, God's power is made perfect in Paul's weakness. Therefore, the apostle says, I, that is Paul, will boast all the more gladly in my weakness, so that the power of Christ might rest upon me. God doesn't call Moses because he's the strongest, most eloquent, best. God calls Moses and equips him and graces him and is present with him and helps his words and moves to make Moses this incredible, noble, faithful leader his people need. The Apostle Paul comes to that same resolution and confidence. When I walk in my own strength rather than in the strength of Christ, that's real weakness. But when I recognize how desperate I am for God's help, how much I need the grace of Christ to support me, how much I need his aid in all of life, that's when God's power comes along and moves and shapes and strengthens and encourages me. And that's when I'm actually strong. It's not actually me being strong. It's Christ's power resting on me, he says. He says, then, for the sake of Christ, I'm content. So again, the hero of the text of Exodus 4 is God. The Lord is declaring to us who he is. He is the God who unashamedly asks of his people to, to risk life for his sake, to risk, comfort, to, to risk comfort for his sake, to abandon their own selfishness and to work and labor for his sake. He calls them to this task, a task that overwhelms them, that rises up like a mountain unable to be climbed in front of Moses. And God's answer to Moses, the weakling, was to say, but I'll make you strong and I will be with you. Consider then this hope. God is telling you throughout the New Testament repeatedly, I will be with you. And the Holy Spirit is given to you as a seal until the promised day of redemption. You cannot lose the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ says he will be with us. No one can pluck us out of God's hand. There is nowhere you can ever be and not have God with you once you are his people. Once you have trusted in Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit has dwelt within you, he will never leave you or forsake you. Ever. There is no excuse for sitting on the bench. There is no excuse for laziness. There is no excuse because you are not inadequate with God's help. And so my encouragement and admonition to all of you is to stop looking for hope in your own resources and look to Christ and serve God faithfully. One of the most common euphemisms for the Christian in the New Testament is slave. They aren't given the freedom to say no. No one asks their opinion of the task beforehand. No one makes a list and says, pick the one you like the best. No one says thank you to a slave. They just give him another task. And God has called us to be his slaves, to joyfully labor for his glory 
and he supports you and is with you and enables you because that's who he declares himself to be to Moses and to us. God is with you. So parents, get after it. Chase your children for Christ's sake. Give them the Lord Jesus Christ. Read to them the scriptures. Pray for your children. Husbands, lead your wives. Shepherd them well. That is not an easy task, men. Wives, serve alongside your husbands as helpers called to help. For those of you that are called to serious tasks of ministry, like sitting by the bedside of a loved one who's passing, mourning with those who mourn, calling unrepentant sinners to repentance, do not consider yourself sufficient. Trust that Christ is, and minister by the grace of Christ, the person of Christ, with the very words of Christ. That is our all-sufficient hope. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for this reminder that Moses has given to us. A man like us, overwhelmed by a task, very likely afraid of the dangers that he would face. With a sense of inadequacy, he asks for help. And you remind him of your many graces your presence, your creative power by which you made our mouths and our eyes and our ears to remind us that the task that has been put in front of us is a task you've equipped us for. Your comfort by sending friends to help him reminds us of the sweet brotherhood that we share in Christ. Father, thank you so much for being the, the Lord who provides for his people who strengthens them by his grace, who walks with them in their dark valleys and shepherds them beside the still waters. Father, thank you for being a Lord who will never leave us or forsake us. We thank you for the promises that if we were to arise to heaven, you are there. And if we were to descend to the place of the dead, you would be with us. You will never leave us. You will never abandon us. You are always with us. Father, I ask that you'd strengthen your people, that with courage, underguarded by faith, they might strive to serve you. They might boldly look to those things that you've called them to and actively engage a life of working for their king. Lord, help us not to feel overwhelmed by the tasks ahead of us. Help us not to be discouraged by ministry too rich for us. Help us not to be overwhelmed by hard hearts that do not want to submit to Christ. Rather, Lord, I pray that you would help us to find our courage and our hope in you. We trust in you to do the work. We trust in you to give us the words to speak. We trust in you to help us to pray more, to be faithful, to know your word, so that we might be equipped servants faithful for you. Lord, for those who might not know you, who might not know how sweet it is to have the hope of your presence and of your grace and help, and of your support. For those who stand outside of the great priestly work of Christ, who brings us into your holy presence through his sacrifice, I ask that they might trust in Christ. They might abandon all other false hopes. They might abandon their own way and follow after Christ, trusting in him wholly. We ask that you might do these works among us, Lord. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.